0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. This is episode 25. I am so grateful to all of you who have followed this podcast, who have shared this podcast, who have posted about various episodes or shared little nuggets of information that have come throughout episodes. I've been so grateful to have a combination of solo episodes where I deep dive into various elements of Card Not Present e-commerce and card not present e-commerce fraud prevention and chargebacks and sometimes a little bit of payments, etc., as well as interviewing people who are just overall in the fraud landscape and ecosystem. While primarily I do focus on e-commerce fraud prevention because that's the world I know and love, last week I got to interview Kelly Paxton from Pink Color, who. Really focuses on pink color crime, which is a really interesting conversation. Frank McKenna, who is working more on car and auto loans and just lending fraud. And we've talked to... Alexander Hall, who is a former fraudster of both in person and online schemes. One of the very first episodes and interviews I did was with Chase Park of Whispered Defense, and no one knows the refunding fraud area and specifics as much as him. At least I have yet to meet anyone. And there are several other interviews too, like with Monica Sharp, who was really integral in building the fraud department for Apple, and Matt Vega, who was at Instacart at the time that he recorded the interview. He's now the head of fraud strategy at BlueSnap, which is a payment facilitator for thousands of card not present merchants internationally. He also was in military intelligence and worked for a very well-known U.S. intelligence agency that has a three-letter acronym. Those are just some of the episodes. If you haven't gone back and listened to those, I really encourage you to. There's just a lot of good pieces of information about all kinds of things. And I really enjoy hearing from those of you who are listening or who have shared this with their teams or encouraged it as either mandatory or suggested listening to their teams. A couple companies have like meetings about some of the topics that have been discussed. So I love hearing that. And it definitely makes the hour or two a week that I put aside for this podcast very worth it. Last week, I actually got such a fun email from a fraud fighter who works for a very well-known company. I don't mean to say that as if you don't work for a well-known company, you aren't just as valuable because you definitely are. But it was definitely fun to hear from them that they were Honestly, part of the catalyst for me talking about that topic as far as the importance of diagnosing account takeovers. And I'll just share the first paragraph of their email because it totally made my day. And I think anyone who's passionate about fraud fighting can definitely relate to this. So they said, So I just finished listening to your latest fraudology podcast and I was geekishly giddy to hear that my conversation around account takeovers, specific to the intent of utilizing card on file slash not having to enter CVV. Spurred this week's topic, like seriously, nerdler over here. I loved that you really hit on the fact that retailers and fraud mitigation vendors need to understand the intent and methodology behind ATOs to more accurately prevent them. This has been one of my greatest strengths in finding and stopping fraud. So side note, this is actually a female fraud fighter who attended the F4, the fearless female fraud fighter retreat that I hosted in January And I just love to receive emails and notes from women who are really owning their strengths and who fearlessly and shamelessly say, I'm really good at this. And that's traditionally something that we all struggle with, myself included. So that was a little sidebar, but I just loved that they owns that. And in getting to know this Rob fighter, I would say that they are definitely right. I really get re-energized whenever I talk to them or whenever they're on one of the calls that I facilitate because they just, ooze fraud passion in such a good way and just absolutely get so excited and get into the mind of a fraudster. Sometimes I can forget that spark. And so it's really fun to see it in others. So just to finish out the paragraph, she said, I truly look at the how and why of the tactics and try and get into the head of fraudsters. I 100,000% agree that it is the key to being able to protect our commerce from the growing sophistication and complexity of payment fraud. They then went into some specifics around what they've been seeing around dynamic CVV models or smart CVV models, and as well as some loopholes that they continue to see that I will not be sharing on a public platform because it Could and probably does apply to more than one big box store or large brand store, especially those that have physical locations with in-store pickup, etc. But what really came through crystal clear on those things is that more than likely their dynamic CVV system is rules-based. And... As I've said before, fraudsters love rules-based systems because they set thresholds so they can figure that out. And the more popular the items that you sell are with consumers, the more popular they'll be with fraudsters and the more popular they'll be with sophisticated fraudsters. I've talked about this before, but knowing where your company lies in the fraud food chain, so to speak, and this is something that Brett Johnson, my former podcast co-host for the online fraudcast used to talk about a lot as well. Is knowing what type of fraudsters your company attracts is very helpful and and useful for fighting fraud because you can know, Okay, we're going to put this one stop gap in and it's going to solve this one problem. But they're going to keep finding new ways around it. So, how can we not just solve for the problem we have today, but how can we solve for the next 10 problems we're going to have? Or where are they going to go and how are they going to morph and adapt and change? And that goes right back to my, it's become infamous fraud zombie analogy that I make in keynote presentations and have done in an article for CNP, I think back in like 2014, but it's still, I think they run it like almost every uh, Halloween and it's pretty fun. But the basic premise is that fraud zombies morph and they change and they adapt to the tools. That are using, always having an eye out for that. And if you are a fraud leader and you just don't have the time to really dive into the details and look at these things, I would really suggest finding a fraud fighter like the one here who is just so good, like a dog with a bone, so to speak. I did have a fun LinkedIn post that was really active. I think it got like over 40 comments or something like that last week about attributes that you look for in a fraud fighter, especially on the analyst level. And a few people use the term dog with a bone. So that's definitely one that's important and really having someone who just won't stop pulling on those threads until they figure it out and identify. Because if you think that you've plugged all the holes in your boat, so to speak, chances are there is some hole where they're all going. So having someone to keep an eye on that and really dive down and diagnose not just what's happening, but the methodology they're using, as well as their goal, their intention, it's just critical. Anyway, obviously, if you want to hear more about that, I did an entire episode about that, so I will stop talking about it. One quick note to this specific merchant. Your email was long and I really want to reply to all of it. So if you are hearing this before I've replied, just know how much I appreciated it and I will reply soon. I just want to provide a thoughtful response. And sometimes that happens where I want to provide a thoughtful response to a LinkedIn message or an email. And then I'm like, oh, I just don't have time right now. And so I'll mark it as unread or I'll try to remember to go back to it. And then oftentimes I just completely space it or I get bogged down in other things. So please just know it's not personal. In a perfect world, I would clone myself and one of me would respond to all of the thoughtful notes and messages and emails I get. And then the other one of me would be working on all client stuff, client projects, which I am so grateful to have. Doing the best I can. I think it's just a good rule of thumb right now these days, just to assume that we are all doing our best. And every day, our best is a little bit different than the day before. And I think in talking with a lot of fraud fighters, I think we're all getting pretty exhausted. It's just, it's been a long 13 months. And if you haven't hit your wall previously, I think you're hitting your wall now. At least that's what it seems to me. And that's okay. I've hit a wall like six or seven times in the last year and a half. Let's just all be a little bit nicer to ourselves. It's something I'm trying to learn and it's actually done me a lot of good. So I'm just going on all kinds of tangents today. But what I really wanted to talk about for the bulk of this episode is chargebacks, specifically fraud coded chargebacks or fraud reason code chargebacks for card not present merchants. So e-commerce, mobile, anytime the credit card isn't present in the transaction, which is happening now more than ever, because so many businesses have had to pivot and create. That's like the the word of 2020 or 2021. We've also heard the term digital transformation. So I'm also getting a lot more inquiries from small to medium companies who just haven't really had to deal with chargebacks. And definitely when you start to get the first one, the second one, it can be very frustrating to say the bank approved this order three months ago and now they want their money back and I don't get a say. It's very frustrating. So often I become like a chargeback therapist. <laughs> But one of the reasons why chargebacks have become one of my favorite subjects and why they're really one of the core focuses of my consultancy when I work with e-commerce merchants is because I learned pretty early on in my career that I understood chargebacks in a different way than most merchants. And I think that that's specifically because I started out on the payment processing side and then I started out on the help desk. So that meant that I really had to learn at a very granular, specific level about merchant statements and billing and chargebacks and being able to answer those questions in detail in a way that they felt satisfied. And then being promoted into the risk department, I worked literally in the exact same department or same area as the chargeback team. And so I saw which chargebacks got represented and sent on to the issuing bank through Visa and MasterCard and which dispute documentation got thrown in the recycling bin. And I saw how much time they had to review it and make split decisions and what exactly they were looking for and in verbiage and in the way that the evidence was laid out, etc. So when I came to the merchant side and started to just hear so many merchants complaining about it, I 100% agree that the rules aren't fair, especially for e-commerce merchants. When... It was decided that e commerce chargebacks were going to go under the same boat as moto orders, is what we used to call them for mail order, telephone order. It wasn't like anyone had a crystal ball and knew that the internet would be a very core piece of commerce in 10, 15, 20 years. It was more just, okay, there's this new thing. People are accepting payments online. Where do we put it as far as a category? Oh, it makes the most sense that it's under moto. And then that tra- moto stopped being used as a term, and it was then CNP for card not present. I think in a perfect world, it would be great if we just tore down the current system and created it all back from scratch. However, that's not going to happen. There's just layers upon layers upon layers of code within the card brand systems and within issuing systems and processor systems, etc. So what I've really found to be the key over the last several years is to understand the rules and understand how to play the game. And I have significant amount of wins under my belt. So it's not just me saying that like philosophically, I have very large wins under my belt, just that I can track that I know about it's well over $150 million that I've saved e-commerce companies in either revamping their chargeback processes Or templates for responses or creating a good outsourcing project or really where they're getting the best out of it, utilizing the right partnerships. But those I actually don't count in that figure. These are all directly tied to processes and templates that I've created and I'm proud of that. Does my bank account reflect those giant losses? No, because I don't charge a commission, but I. I'm very proud of it and I'm looking forward to being able to hopefully provide more information and training about chargebacks that's scalable soon. That's been on my roadmap for the last year, but COVID has changed a few priorities, especially around revenue as a business owner. So. All of that to say, I wanted to share a little bit of just where I'm coming from on this. I see chargebacks holistically from end to end, from the time that the customer contacts the issuer all the way to the final decision is made. And I have some philosophies and theories that have been very much proven. Just know that. So if you're listening to this and you're like, "Uh, this sounds great, but in a perfect universe with sunshine and rainbows, no, actually these things are achievable. This topic of broad reason code chargebacks has come up over and over again, especially in the last year and a half. I actually hosted a merchant. I post a few different merchant only conversations and collaboration calls that I've mentioned before on previous podcast episodes. And this topic has come up on, I think every single one of them at different times. And just most recently last month, I facilitated a conversation on behalf of Cardnot Presence in Focus Week. So every week they have, or every month, they have one week where there's one topic that's in focus and part of that week includes a webinar about the topic and several resource guides and articles as well as a merchant-only conversation and those are the highlights of my week when those are on my calendar. And this question came up. It was the very first question that was asked. And this is something that I find myself getting a lot of questions about too, like in LinkedIn and email. So I thought it'd be really helpful for me to share a lot of information that can help you and that I can also point people back to so that I'm able to provide this information and it's scalable. That said, let's first talk about reason codes and how they are established. (laughs) Issuing banks are selecting reason codes traditionally based on what the customer tells them. Now, I should also say that 90% of this information is going to be mostly about the U.S. That's not to say that it can't be applied to the EU, UK, Australia, and other areas of APAC and just EMEA in general, but the U.S. by far has more chargebacks, more fraud, For lots of reasons, which is a whole other conversation. But if that's relevant and of interest to anyone, let me know. And that can be a future podcast episode. I've done actually a significant amount of research, as well as sharing with some clients that I've had that start off in other countries and come to the U.S. and just their chargebacks soar even when they duplicate whatever processes they had in Europe or Asia. So I have quite a few talking points about why the U.S. is different on that. In the U.S. especially, but just everywhere, the issuer is the one that selects the reason code. The reason code is important throughout the chargeback process for many reasons. There are specific rules per reason code. For instance, the timeline, the how many days a cardholder can challenge a transaction is based on the reason code. What exact documents are required by the merchant to try to regain that money or recover those funds through the chargeback representment process is determined by the reason code. There's just a lot of things that are very reason code specific. And often they're chosen by the issuer. Sometimes they're chosen by the cardholder if they are filing it online. But the reason code really is important throughout the process. Oftentimes the issuer is selecting the reason code. And over the last several years, the fraud reason code has become the catch all. And a lot of that is because there is no issue or accountability on chargebacks. I'm sure I've probably shared this rant on previous episodes before. This is something that I've been very passionate about for, I don't know, the last eight or nine years of my career, especially since I started getting asked by card brands for chargeback advice. I actually helped one of the card brands build. A chargeback reporting system for merchants several years ago. Once I started getting in the room with these card brands, I was like, issuer accountability on reason codes is so important, but it's hard for card brands because they have to balance both sides. But here's the thing. Since 2011, fraud reason code chargebacks are the easiest for issuers to file. They're the easiest for a customer service representative for an issuer to file because there is no follow-up required. If the cardholder calls and says, I was expecting an orange shirt and I got a red shirt. Well, that would be not as described or product not as described. And the cardholder would require to like send in pictures of what they were expecting from the website and then what they got and create a statement. And so that would create follow up for the customer service rep. And often these KPIs for customer service reps on the issuing side is how fast the call can be since fraud reason code chargebacks have not required a signed fraud affidavit since 2011 or 12. I want to say 11. These are the easiest ones to file because they just click a button. They don't need any other information and it just goes through the process. And there's other reasons too. Often if my card was stolen on the 10th of March and there were charges from the 9th of March, the issuer might just bundle all of those together. Really, I think What's happened is that the fraud reason code has become this cue for merchants to investigate. There's not a lot of on issuers, especially in the US. And I say that because in Europe and it, <laughs> sometimes it's almost impossible for people to file a fraud chargeback even when their card was, it was stolen, because I've heard stories of their bank saying, are you sure you didn't have it? Are you sure someone in your house didn't have it? Like they're almost interrogating the person that is filing the chargeback. That's just not the case here. We have very consumer friendly rules and customer service policies especially in banking with so much competition on the credit card side and the issuer side. Like I said, there are other things and other reasons that can trigger this, but primarily it does seem like it's happening on the customer service side, on the issuer side quite a bit. And they're just selecting this fraud reason code because it's the fastest call times. It's the fastest with no follow-ups that they have to go track down the cardholder more. And so now this has created a a pretty significant problem for e-commerce merchants, especially those that were or that have a policy of marking all fraud chargebacks and fraud reason code chargebacks as fraud in their system. There's one very large, well-known company that I know of who shared with me recently that they... Did a pilot program or an A B test where they called each card holder of reason code chargebacks. And I'll side note that in a second because I'm sure there's a few people assuming that these will all be fraud. And of course, they're going to say that their card was stolen. But no, I mean, there's so I'll get to that in a second. But When they called and talked to the legitimate cardholders on chargebacks that were coded as fraud by the bank, but they look in their system and it just didn't look like fraud. Everything from the cardholder had used the same card a year before with no problems and no chargebacks to everything was the same. There was just no evidence of fraud at all. And when they called the cardholder, they answered. If it's a fraud order, most of the time that number is dead or it's not relevant or it's not really the cardholders unless it was account takeover. But there's always going to be except for the time when in these situations, but Just for the sake of time, I'm going to be making some generalizations. But this very large merchant did this test of calling cardholders, and they found that north of 60% of all their chargebacks that were coded as fraud by the issuing bank were not truly fraud. And what I mean by that was the cardholder participated in the transaction. There was not payment fraud involved. Sometimes cardholders will say, I shouldn't have been charged for that. So that was fraud. Okay, but that's not the true definition of fraud. True definition for the sake of chargebacks should be that the cardholder was not in possession of the card. They did not participate in the transaction. They did not provide that merchant their card number at another time. If any of those things happen, there are other reason codes for that that are more applicable and that should be selected. I can say that I've done this with clients as well, and that 60% number is pretty common. It varies based on a lot of factors from the dollar amount to the merchant's process. Is it subscription billing? That's going to vary big time. But for the most part, I would say just generally speaking, at least 50% of your fraud chargebacks probably have nothing to do with actual true fraud. So obviously putting those in your fraud system can be pretty dangerous. It can cause a lot of customer service issues, especially if you're doing that as part of a consortium. So a lot to think about, but that's just a general best practice. What I'm really encouraging a lot of merchants to do now is to have a process where they have someone who's looking at these chargebacks that are fraud reason code, someone with fraud knowledge was able to almost reverse engineer the order and look at it and see if they can verify that the cardholder lives there, see if there's something, you know, funky going on. Maybe they did send it to the cardholder's address, but it was rerouted. But other times, a lot of it you'll find this doesn't look like fraud. And especially in hindsight, fraud's pretty easy to spot. So that's something to keep in mind. So I always recommend that. That's actually the process that I created for Expedia 10 years ago that's still in place now. And that's part of the process. It was a whole end-to-end process for friendly fraud. But a big part of it was diagnosing those fraud and code chargebacks. And you'll learn a lot about your business, a lot about your customers and how you can get that money back when you're doing that. So that process, that person is very valuable and you can actually put a pretty significant dollar amount on the ROI for that when you're looking at. And once you put them in place, you can really see how much you're saving in preventing chargebacks as well as in recovering, which can really be important, especially for larger ticket items. That's the first best practice is that I really think that all merchants should be doing that at this point. And another common mistake is merchants thinking that all cardholders called in the chargeback or that they're committing friendly fraud knowingly, that's just not the case. If you do put in a process to call all cardholders of fraud reason code chargebacks that don't appear to be true fraud, or even a week, I usually recommend a month or depending on your resources, a week, you will learn so much. You'll learn people who will say, what's a chargeback? Or I just called to ask my bank what I bought at your website and they didn't know. Well, the only action that an issuer can take because they don't unless you're enrolled in special programs, etc. Again, it's really hard to generalize in this because there's so many except for the time when this or that, but the majority of the time an issuer cannot tell a cardholder what they purchased at a large company, especially large companies that sell everything, one-stop shop companies. A lot of times the issuer, like the person on the phone wants to do something to resolve it or some kind of action. And so the action they take is to file a chargeback. I'm not saying any of this is fair. I'm just telling you how it is. So I just want everyone to know I am not at all saying that any of this is okay or good or fair or the way it should be. This is just the way it is. A lot of times you'll find customers who didn't even know that they filed a chargeback or that they're getting money back. Sometimes the cardholders don't even get the money back. Sometimes the issuers you know keep it or they'll file it on the cardholders behalf, but then not trickle it to the cardholder. It depends on the bank. It depends on a lot of other things. But This is an area that I found and I'm saying these things because they've happened more than a few times. Other times you'll find out, like I said earlier, I called to report fraud on one thing, but not my transaction with you. Or I didn't know if I thought that the product hadn't arrived yet. And so maybe it wasn't going to, but then it showed up the next day. Whatever they tell you is so valuable because you can start to look for patterns and try to root cause analysis and maybe change a policy or process, or maybe make sure that your customer service number is even more prominent on your website. So they're calling you instead of their bank. There's a lot of different things you can do depending on the specifics. I have a lot of tools in my tool belt, so to speak for that, but that's the first process. I do recommend that if you have a high percentage of these fraud chargebacks that just don't scream fraud, that you do implement a process to call them. I think it's very important And provides a lot of business intelligence that you can provide up to your leadership and your executives. You can provide more advocacy for your company when you truly understand the root cause of the charge box. There is one silver lining of this fraud reason code being a catch-all. And again, this is really just me trying to find... The glass half full scenario, this does not mean that this makes everything okay. But when it comes to responding to chargebacks, that reason code is critical. And if the reason code selected was fraud and the cardholder or the bank is claiming that the cardholder didn't participate in the transaction, your job is to prove that the cardholder did participate in the transaction. Even if there are notes in the system saying that the cardholder was mad about the charge and they're trying to get a refund, well, you can use that to say, the cardholder participated in the transaction. Here's the proof. Responding to chargebacks are subjective. So sometimes it does depend on like the mood and the full moon. I don't really think it's the full moon. Various factors of the two humans that are reviewing your response documentation. The first one being at your payment processor and the second one being at the issuing bank. I've been very fortunate to just have so much experience in knowing like staff verbiage and order, et cetera. But I would say if you're not feeling like your win rate and win rates vary as well, but if your win rate needs some help, I would encourage you to change some things around on your dispute documentation, because it may be the fact that you're not providing exactly what they're looking for or what they're needing. And so they're just denying all of it because they do have a very short period of time to make an assessment. There's so much more there. There's only so much I can Say on a public platform as well as just, you know, I am still at the end of the day, a consultant on this, but I am hoping and planning, like I said, to create chargeback training soon. I have about half of it done and really looking forward to sharing all these, most of these little secrets and tricks and tips with everyone at scale. Cause it's something that it only has so much value to me until I share it with everyone. And then it has so much value. Keep reframing those, keep trying to process, improve them. Don't just assume that the way you're doing it is the right way. I have had so much success. I've had a couple of clients even recently that I just tweaked the order as well as some of the verbiage on some of the specific reason code templates that they had. And their win rate increased double digits significantly in percentage as well as in dollar. This is something that can be improved upon. That's really what I'm trying to say. I think once you implement that process of calling just for a short period of time, you'll learn a lot about that. And then also you can provide elements of those conversations in the dispute documentation to say... On such and such date, we contacted the cardholder and they acknowledge that they made the transaction and then leave it at that. Right. And sometimes the bank will come back with a different reason code. But most of the time, if they can't prove that the cardholder didn't make the charge, then they should, in theory, be accepting your dispute documentation. And if they aren't, you can go back and listen to the episode that I talked about arbitration. Think it was called to arbitrate or not to arbitrate. And that will tell you that you, know, you may have an option to pursue it further, especially on those higher dollar chargebacks. Inevitably, whenever I'm discussing or answering questions about the chargeback response process, it leads to a bigger conversation often about whether it's better to dispute chargebacks internally in-house or outsource them. And I would say, just like with everything else, my answer varies. I don't have the same answer to everyone. There's definitely value in both sides. There's some companies where I would say, The benefit of having the knowledge and understanding of why chargebacks are coming in and being able to see those patterns, especially on the true fraud chargebacks, because that's the true fraud that you missed, that your system missed, et cetera. I think there's some real value of having all of that business intelligence in-house. Also, no one knows your business better than yourself. So if you have a good response process and documentation that you're providing, then that might be the best way. It also has to do with volume and dollar value of your chargebacks, whether you should make that decision. But on the other side, resources are expensive. Full-time employees are expensive. Some companies just write off the bulk of their chargebacks as a cost of doing business, but just want to see if there's any low-hanging fruit, so to speak, that they can dispute and get their money back on. So they'll outsource it. And especially for the merchants that have thousands of chargebacks a month, that's often a better case. However... (laughs) Up until very recently, I really hated when I would get asked the question, what chargeback company should we be talking to or which chargeback companies should we be talking to? I do have some strong opinions on some of the players, but it's primarily based on merchant feedback and great frankly, horror stories. Not all chargeback management or chargeback response companies are knowledgeable or even good. And there are some that just have their win rates are like under 20%. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, it really frustrates me. This strong sense of justice I have really gets triggered when I see merchants getting taken advantage of on this or that they just don't understand the process because it is very confusing. And not everyone got six months of training on the chargeback and payment process at the very beginning of their career like I did. And so I get really frustrated with merchants being taken advantage of, lied to, given the wrong information, et cetera. And there have been a few companies over the years that I've been encouraged by or that I've said, hey, there are some merchants that really like this company, that company, the other company. So I'm certainly not saying that all of them are bad, but I do think that a lot of them have an approach of every merchant needs to have all the services and the chargebacks and there's upcharges and there's different programs. And I don't feel that way, I think. Those programs are beneficial for some situations, but not all of them. Like I said, sometimes it's a curse to be a confidant in this industry because you do hear the horror stories. And when you keep hearing the same company name or company's names over and over again in those horror stories, I just can't in a good conscience suggest that people go talk to them. I've been critical of them also because I understand this process better than most people. So over the last probably five or six years, I've had these three criteria that I've always had when talking to chargeback companies, because a lot of them, of course, want my endorsement or for me to recommend them when people reach out to me. And I've been pretty hard and critical on them. And there's one, possibly two, 2.5 maybe companies that I do recommend to now. And this is after so much work, like thorough investigation on my end, I have talked to CEOs, I have talked to the operations people at these companies to really make sure because I take that seriously and I really don't ever want anyone to get taken advantage of, especially because of a recommendation I made. I thought that it might be helpful to share with you what those three criteria are and you can take this however you want, but these are the three criteria that I think are really critical in chargeback companies that I will recommend or that I think are doing a good job. And I would encourage you to ask the chargeback companies you're working with or that you're potentially working with these questions. And I think even if they don't fully comply with each of these criteria, these points will lead to conversations that will help you better understand the service that you're getting. So the very first criteria is that they don't represent everything, that they don't respond to every single chargeback. There are some people in general who think that the best chargeback response strategy is to throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. And there are a few things wrong with that. The first one is that when you respond to a chargeback and it gets declined, you lose that first time chargeback or you get a loss. A lot of times you're getting a second time chargeback or pre-arbitration and that's charging you a second chargeback. Also, it's just mucking up the system. And I've seen a lot of times, especially when I was at the payment processor, but I've seen win rates steeply increase when merchants stop responding to every single chargeback because their payment processor, their eyes start to glaze over. If you're responding to all the true fraud chargebacks or the ones where you did mess up as a merchant and should have credited the customer or given them a refund or whatever the situation was. Then your processor doesn't know which chargebacks to pursue and push forward to the issuing bank. So sometimes their eyes glaze over and you're going to lose more that way as a ratio. You're also going to lose their respect because they're like, gosh, if you're sending us all this documentation for this transaction that's fully fraud, then how do we know what transactions we should be pushing? So these are just a few reasons why I could talk about each one of these criteria and why they're so important to me. The second one is that... A chargeback company will only count a win. And what I mean by a win is a chargeback won in the merchant's favor where the money is recovered. And often that's the mechanism that triggers the fee for the chargeback provider, that they are only counting that win in quotation marks as a chargeback when it doesn't result in a pre-arbitration or second time chargeback, not just when you get a first time win. And this is something that I get asked a lot about as well is How do we calculate the win rate? And it's confusing because you get a notification when you win the first time chargeback. But really all that's saying is that your processor thinks that you have enough information to send it over to the issuing bank. You cannot count that as a final win because there are a pretty significant number that come back as pre-arbitrations and that money is debited from your account again. And I've seen this many times, especially several years ago, but it's still happening in some cases where if a chargeback provider has in the contract, they're going to get a percentage of the transaction amount if they win. Sometimes they'll count that as the first time. So say it's 30% of the transaction. They're taking that 30% out when the merchant is credited back a provisional credit for the first time chargeback. But then a free arbitration comes back And the merchant is debited that full transaction amount again, and that's it, unless the merchant chooses to go to arbitration, which is still fairly rare. And the chargeback company has still taken that 30%, and you've gotten a second-time chargeback fee. So in theory, that merchant is out more money than had they just not even responded to a chargeback at all. For example, say that you have a chargeback for $100, and you got a $15 chargeback fee for the first one. Then your chargeback provider responds to the chargeback and you get a provisional credit and you get a first time win on your chargeback. Then assuming that they take out their fee, then the 30% would be $30. So now at this point, that chargeback has cost you $45, but you got the whole $100 back. Okay. We would net win of $55. Okay. That's better than nothing. Then it comes back as a second time chargeback. So you get a second $15 fee. So now you're up $60 and the bank has taken that full $100 chargeback out of your account again and given it to the issuer. So now you are negative $60 net. I hope that was understandable without a whiteboard and slides, et cetera. And I will say that not every chargeback management company does this. This was much more common a few years ago, but... It is something that some contracts are still like that. And just because there aren't reports from merchant processors that say these are all the chargebacks that you officially won because it doesn't trigger action in their system, then when there isn't a second time chargeback, it's confusing. But the way to really calculate your true win rate is to look at all chargebacks that came in as a first time that did not get a pre-arbitration or a second time within 30 days. I've been able to create Excel reporting sheet for previous clients that feeds this in. So I know it's possible, but it is quite frustrating. But that is something that because a lot of merchants don't fully understand the system and don't really know how to account for this, or the accounting department is completely separate, etc.
1: There's just not a lot of
0: oversight in that space. And it happens More often than you'd think. Same can happen for billing per chargeback fee. So some companies only charge the fee when they win, in quotation marks. It's really important to know how they're defining a win. Look at your contract, ask your chargeback provider, look at your statements. These are all important. And then the third criteria I've had is that a chargeback company provide in-depth reporting to facilitate root cause analysis and chargeback prevention in all areas not just fraud for instance knowing which marketing event these chargebacks all came from or if there's any trends there knowing if there's a specific affiliate that these are coming through or that have higher chargebacks than others I did an analysis once for a chain of companies if I even say anything more than that then it's getting probably given away but a chain of companies with physical locations, and we're able to find some pretty interesting patterns based off of location or based off of bin. Like, the that's more for online transactions, but I've done a lot of analysis on a lot of things, and you can really find a lot of patterns in this as far as bins that are high up or. That issue high chargebacks, or you can look at the bins that you're receiving, bank identification number, the chargeback or the credit card companies that you're receiving wins on. There's so much granular detail. And if your chargeback provider is just providing wins, losses, or like very, very basic reporting there's not a lot that you can do to prevent chargebacks from coming in in the first place. And that's probably intentional in some parts, right? There especially was a company that was around years ago that I don't think is around anymore that believed that if you give your merchants any information at all about why the chargebacks are coming in, even the true fraud chargebacks to stop those in the upfront, then you're reducing your billable amounts for the merchant for your own company, right? Chargeback management companies are there to make a profit. So Some of them made the determination that if we give merchants all this information about where their chargebacks are coming from, that they can then go and do some preventative measures, rewriting a marketing ad next time. right? If there was a verbiage around free trial, maybe you change it to something else because you had a huge spike in chargebacks for that marketing event or a price point or a specific product. Maybe there's some kind of defect that you're not aware of. There's just so much business intelligence in root cause analysis. And this is something that for the longest time I was providing my clients, I'm not doing as much just because it's so time intensive for me, but it is something that I teach them how to do. And honestly, a data scientist is much better skilled at it anyway. But if you're using a third party to manage your chargebacks, you shouldn't have to do this on a regular basis internally. It should be something that exists. So I've had this wish list for a long time and I really haven't compromised on that. Like I said, I'm happy to say that there's at least two companies that do hit each of these criteria that I've talked to, and I'm not here to do an advertisement for them at all. Certainly, if you really want to know, you can contact me, but I just wanted to provide that information for you guys, because I think this is something that I haven't written about or shared before that I think can be very valuable and is important for the continuity of your business or really helping your company maximize revenue, but minimize risk. There's this whole other portion of fraud that provides a lot of opportunity. There are some companies that can, some merchant companies that have gotten up to the high 70s or 80s in chargeback representments. Now, granted, that also shows that a lot of those chargebacks shouldn't have been issued in the first place. But the fact that you're getting that money back from your company is a huge win. Something that you can really boast about, and also you can just provide so much business intelligence to your company about the transactions that people are calling their banks to dispute, or even just calling their bank to ask what the charge was for, and then it initiates a chargeback. So I think that's where I'm going to stop for today. Sometimes when I'm doing these solo episodes, I don't always know how helpful or informative they are to people. So. Certainly would love to hear feedback if this was helpful to you at all. Also other topics that you'd like to hear me deep dive on or people that you'd like for me to interview or you'd like to hear an interview. This is a two way street. I am creating this for you guys. So I really appreciate hearing what will be helpful for next time. All of that said, I am looking forward to speaking with you next week and I hope it's a great one for you.